This is episode 55 of the Swallow Your Pride podcast, and today we are back with part two with uh, Dr. Pam Smith, and I I love this episode. I love this part of this of the episode I recorded with her. I wanted to make it a two-part series because I think after you listen to this, you'll understand there's there's a lot in here. And I think for a lot of kind of the beginner clinicians or even the old school clinicians, whatever you, uh, however you identify, I think there's a lot of really good nuggets in here. And kind of one of the big things that Pam harps on is, you know, don't let yourself get old school. So even if you are an oldie, don't be an oldie, okay? Um, You know, she gives a lot of good experiences and things that she tells her students about how it's just so important to stay up on the research and to be constantly evolving. Um, And also what I what I do love is is that she talks about, you know, what can we do if we don't have access to instrumentation? And I don't want you to think for one second that I'm lifting my foot up off the gas of <laughs> driving this instrumentation bus forward because I'm absolutely not. But, um, you know, I, I don't know what the circumstances are of why people can't get instrumentation. I just would never work in one of those places, but that's me. Um, but anyways, what can you do? And so Pam goes into a lot of things that, you know, we can and we absolutely cannot do without instrumentation. And a lot of it comes down to patients' wishes and patients' rights and really how to have those risk-benefit conversations with your patients. So um, the reason I wanted to tell you all that is because she includes a lot of really good, I think there's like six or seven different links that she sent me. Um, to actual documentation about patients' rights, because a lot of times I get so many messages from you guys that, you know, my facility won't allow me to have instrumentation, and my patient wants to get off these thickened liquids, and I don't know what to do, and, you know, it really comes down to patients' rights, and a lot of you say your facilities don't honor patients' rights, so here are some actual documents, um, some from an attorney, uh, some from ASHA about what how we should be treating our patients and that they do have rights and that we need to be honoring them. So if you are in one of these predicaments, please, please, please download the show notes and use those for your arguments. So um, that's this upcoming episode. I also want to remind you about the MedBridge deal that is going on this month. Um, It's going on through September 30th. Uh, So go to medbridgeeducation.com forward slash SYP, or if you use promo code SYP, you can get upgraded to the premium plan for free. So for $95, you get access for one year to the MedBridge membership. So if you have no clue what it is, I'll tell you more (laughs) in a second, Um, but they are honoring this for renewals as well. So if you are just a first timer, you can usually get this deal, but they've never offered it before for renewal. So I'm so glad that they decided to do that for all these Swallow Your Pride listeners. Disclaimer, if you do use my SYP promo code, I do get a cut of that that goes right back into this podcast to keep it going and keep me sane. But why do I love MedBridge so much? Um, It's basically just a ton of little videos, little lectures by some really cool, really smart people in our field. So 
Um, it's kind of like going back to college, I feel like, but it's really, really applicable. So um, there's a lot of really great researchers in here that are talking about topics that are very prevalent to us today. There's a ton of dysphagia, but they also do have other courses. There's aphasia, dysarthria, voice, apraxia. There's all the areas that we should be dealing with. As far as uh, dysphagia, there's also pediatrics too. So if you're working in NICU, uh, there's a lot of information here for that. And also our beloved Megan Sutton, who we all love, is one of the sweetest people in the world and extremely smart too, has her courses now up on MedBridge. So I know some people have been dying to learn more from her. And as far as courses, if you're looking for ventrate courses, if you're looking for what to do if you work in the schools with dysphagia, drugs and dysphagia, dysphagia in older adults, working with head and neck cancer, working with swallowing after stroke, getting some more practice with doing video fluoroscopy, a lot of exercise training, reflux, and also some esophageal disorders courses in here as well. So you get access to unlimited CEUs. So unlimited CEUs, you get access to their patient handouts, which are really good. So things like why your patients should understand the risks of aspiration and things that can be done um, there's also the home exercise builder. So you go in and you click which exercises you want to recommend for your patient to do. It prints you out this really fancy sheet and you can send that on your way with your patient. And the patient can also log on to the patient portal at home from themselves so they can see what you've assigned. So that's really handy. And then lastly, you also have access to the mobile app. So I definitely love to just, I'll put these on when I'm in long drives. I'll just play one of these through the app and listen to it while I'm driving. So just some good way to get some really good evidence-based, up-to-date information from some really respectable researchers and speakers in our field. So um, again, this deal is going on through September 30th. Go to medbridgeeducation.com. Use promo code SYP at checkout. This is good for both renewals and brand new customers. You get access to the premium membership for one calendar year from the date that you sign up. So if you sign up tomorrow, you get it for 365 days from tomorrow. So um, go ahead and get signed up for that and we will get on with the episode. Just a quick disclaimer that all statements and opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect on the organizations associated with the speakers and are their own opinions solely. Welcome to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders, and I know firsthand how much confusing and conflicting information there is out there about how we assess and treat swallowing disorders. This podcast is all about bringing everyone together, getting on the same page, being open to new ideas, and using evidence-based treatment strategies for our patients with dysphagia. So let's get into it. So we've talked about how we have to advocate for instrumentals in our profession, but what if it just is a flat out no? What do you say to those SLPs that just can't possibly get instrumentals in their facility? Well, I wouldn't give up, but I think people have to be very careful about how they handle those situations. And I know there's, there's a lot of disagreement out there. There are a lot of different opinions out there about what to do when that sort of thing happens. I don't believe in abandoning patients. Um, I don't believe, but for me, and this is for me personally, and I'm not going to criticize any clinician who would handle it differently. Um, I wouldn't, I, me personally, I would not flat out say that I'm not going to have anything further to do with this patient's treatment. I just would not do that. 
Um, I would not recommend any specific postures or maneuvers because we can't know. We just can't know. I think that there are some general safety things that we can do. Um, are they guaranteed? No. And I would make a point of saying that, you know, in, in response to that, all I can do is some very general safety kinds of things, and I cannot guarantee that they work. I think that if we have some behavioral evidence that attention is playing a role in a patient and their potential symptoms, that we can do some work on, on the environment and making sure that the environment is as least distracting as possible. Um, although we don't necessarily know for sure, because without the instrumental, we can't tell what's happening. Um, if we see that a patient's clinical symptoms increase when they eat rapidly or take large bites, that we can see if it improves when they take small bites or eat more slowly. I can't guarantee that they're not penetrating or aspirating. I can reduce distress. Meal completion is not a dysphagia goal, but it's a nutrition goal. And if a person can eat more comfortably, then that would be a positive outcome. So, you know, there are, and certainly you can work on oral stage issues that you can see. Um, but, you know, I would not give up the fight. I do think that people get frustrated enough with those situations um, where they do end up saying, you know, I'm, I'm tired of this and I'm going to go to a different place. I think what a lot of people need is one good success. Yep. If you have one good success, um, then that's, that's your best commercial, so to speak. You know, like, remember like with Mrs. Jones, I don't like to use that people always use that. <laughs> remember like with Mrs. Jones, you know, and we thought she was aspirating everything because she was coughing so much. We had that study done and it turned out she really wasn't. You know, she had some reflux and it was easily managed. And you know, now she's on this regular diet. She's doing beautifully. And we were so nervous about what was happening because we just couldn't say. So you have one success story and then that's one that builds from there. I also believe, and, you know, this, pro I don't know how popular an opinion this would be. Asha used to have this really great document that they have now rescinded the document because everything's in the practice portal. So the information is still out there. But it was a clinical indicators for yes. instrumental assessment. I was looking for that like a few months it's ago. Gone. Yes. It's all the information's in the practice. Oh, someone was like, yeah. I think you're crazy. This document doesn't exist. And I'm like, no, yeah, I had no. the reference and everything. Dang it. No. it yeah, the document was rescinded. <sighs> but, you know, there were some, there's some times where instrumentation is not required, not necessary. And there are times, you know, I think people could make different arguments, but I, I would say that, there are times when it's not beneficial. You know, if you know that your treatment program or your outcome or whatever is not going to change, then, you know, it's not necessarily a good investment of time, money, and resources to do this instrumental. And I could add at that time. Another buzzword that you always have to make sure students know, always add at this time to yes. any recommendation. Yes. Because you don't know what's going to follow you. Right. Big picture thinking. Right. You know, that, that document or that information that's now in the practice portal does say that, you know, there are times when the instrumental assessment may not be necessary. So what, what I was getting at here, you know, the story of the boy who cried wolf. If I'm asking for an instrumental assessment on absolutely every single person, because I may believe that for every patient with dysphagia, I should get an instrumental assessment. You know, I'm not going to argue that. But if I do that, if I'm always asking for an instrumental assessment on every single one, and then the time when I really, really, really need it, I might get denied it. You know, I, I think I might as a clinician in the field, this is how I always practice. I was judicious in that. Probably 
if I were out in the facilities right now full time, I'd be asking for a lot more than I did 20 years ago. I'm yeah. sure I would. Yeah. But not on everybody. Yeah. Because you just don't always need it. And those parameters in that article, which is now in the practice portal, you know, is one. So, you know, if the, if the patient doesn't have the medical stability to really carry out the exam, one that I always use, I mean, there's a story that I, that I told the hospital where, where I work, we did the outpatient videos for several area nursing homes. And one was walking distance. You know, they still had to um, bring the patient over for a study. And, you know, the fact that it was a Friday afternoon and this, the speech therapist in the building had done an assessment and was terrified for the weekend for this person. She didn't know what to do with them. So she ordered a stat video on a Friday afternoon at 4.30. I was not popular with radiology that day. Um, they brought him over, and this patient was so lethargic. Anyway, she brings, and the patient comes over, and the therapist is in kind of a panic because she doesn't know what to do. You know, and this patient can hardly wake him up. There's really no response to anything. Like to name the tactile stimulation to anything. And, you know, I'm looking at like, this is not a case of an urgent dysphagia evaluation. This is a patient that needed an urgent nursing intervention. You know, he needs an IV he, or to be considered for these things. You know, I'm not qualified to make those decisions. Like, why aren't they putting an IV in him? Why aren't they considering dropping an NG tube? Why aren't they considering making this person a bit more medically stable? Because you can survive for a weekend, and if they don't think he can survive for a weekend just with IV fluids, drop an NG tube or you know something. Nursing can do that. Meanwhile, they paid for an ambulance transfer, a video fluoroscopy because you know we tried and got nowhere. There was nothing. There was no swallow at all. And like, had I been that therapist in the building, I would never have asked for that. Yeah, I would have said we need some urgent medical management here. If you want to manage it in house with nursing intervention, that's fine. If you feel as the attending physician that he needs to be sent out, you know, that's really your call. And that would be a case where, no, the, the plan of treatment would not change based on that, based on what I'd seen. And, and I don't know if that particular therapist is many, many years ago. Again, we all know a lot more now than we did then. Um, would she have made the same call now? I'm sure not. Yeah. But, you know, it was a case, and, and this was all exacerbated by the fact that it was a Friday at 4.30. Yes. When I thought was a really, and, and I know there's no way I could have known that. She's yeah. like, oh, no, it's terrible. He can't swallow at all. And I don't know what's going on. Yeah, he's so lethargic. Nobody can even wake him up. You yeah. Know, this yeah. is not a problem. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I think that's the huge struggle in our field, too, is a lot of the, you know, the acute care versus the sniff therapists. The, you know, acute care therapist will say, you know, he was way too sick for me to even. Yeah get him out for yeah. a swallow study, but then Monday he's alive and well. And so they send him off to the sniff, you know, and then the sniff wonders, why in the heck didn't you guys see him? You know? So I think what yeah. you said about, you know, your notes are so important to say at this time, at you know, patient time. is too lethargic to participate in the study. Yeah. Um, and, and understanding, you know, and again, we see this a lot. You see it in social media comments. You know, why didn't they do the? Yeah. Here's where the big picture is. They make this totally financial. It totally has nothing to do with clinical appropriateness. In the hospitals, they would rather discharge the person and have the instrumental assessment paid for at the SNF level of care. At the SNF level of care, they would prefer to have the hospital have to pay for it out of their DRG um, so that they don't have... And so everybody would rather... When we talk about, well, it's not really a matter of paying for it because it's covered by this lump sum. Right. 
Right. But everybody would rather have it come out of somebody else's lump sum. Right. And so the therapists are kind of stuck in between that. You know, people, I was an acute care therapist for several years. We don't have any control over when people are discharged. Right. We really don't. And in skilled nursing, then you are trying to advocate. Well, why didn't they do it then? Well, primarily because it was, this patient wasn't expected to be discharged till the end of the week and we got her today. Yeah. You know, and, and so it's a lot, a lot of those issues are economic. And I think we do our, our colleague, um, a big favor if we have a baseline level of trust in them and not thinking like, oh, I don't know why they didn't do it. They should have done it. They should have done this test. Well, A, they may, they may have tried. Yeah. Or the patient may not have been appropriate or the patient may have been discharged or they may have said no. You know, that happens everywhere. People can be mean, and I don't know that you necessarily get anywhere by just being mean about these things. I know. I did a I did a presentation for the New York City dysphagia group last night, and just kind of at the end, I just said, you know, if you guys learned anything from this, I just want you to take away, you are responsible for your patient today. So however mm-hmm. they presented last week, however they presented yesterday in acute care, look at your patient how they are today and treat them like they are your patient today. You know, I think we get so caught up in why didn't they do that? Why didn't they do that? They'll get yeah. that at the next level of care. You don't know that. You're responsible for treating that patient today. You know, right. and I think, you know, we see the patient go there 100 days in the sniff and then they get to home health and home health wonders the same thing. Why didn't they get the study? And it's this whole, you know, back and forth accusatory thing. And it's just like, cut the crap. It's your patient now and do what you need to do to help this patient as much as you can in your power. Right. I mean, do the best you can with the moment that you have. Yeah. And again, recognizing that, you know, and I, I would bet this, that at every level, clinicians are saying the same thing. I'm going to do the best I can with what I have. Yep. But there's another, just, you know, make the best decision you can with the information you have at the time. That's all any of us can do. Right. Um, there's a story I always tell the class the very first day of swallowing one. And it's a story I don't like. I don't like it at all. And it's another big picture issue. We had an instrumental assessment on this. And it is my story about how just doing instrumentals is not the be all, the end all. It's what you do with that information. We had this person who was evaluated from another site. I'm not going to say what type of facility it was. Um, but he was a young person. He was only, I think, 37 or 38 years old. And the referral came in. He was an outpatient study for us. He was living in a residential facility. And he was referred uh, because he'd had an increase in throat clearing during meals. That was it. So, like, okay. And, you know, I'm reviewing the medication list and the history. And, all right, well, there's nothing really all that significant here. There were some significant uh, medications. There was a history of schizophrenia. And um, we did the video. And absolutely everything went into this guy's trachea. I mean, there was not a quote-unquote safe consistency. Thins rolled right in like wet paint. Nectars rolled in like wet paint. You get thicker than that, and they you had so much residual throughout the pharynx that eventually saliva broke it down, and it went in like wet paint. I mean, everything was aspirated. And there was some throat clearing once things got halfway down the trachea. It's like, oh, my God. And so I was very new to video fluoroscopy. I really had not that long ago learned how to do it. You know, so I, although I'd been working for quite a few years, I was very green with the procedure. And I made the recommendations that at the time we made, that this person does not have 
the ability to handle a PO diet, and we recommended consideration for alternative feeding uh, to alternate route of nutrition. And there was this big meeting with various people from his facility, um, and they were not happy to hear that. You know, and I stuck to my guns about what the video showed. But the part I forgot or that I didn't know about because we didn't think this way then, this guy was young. He had never had aspiration pneumonia. He was ambulatory. Um, he was independent. He hadn't gotten sick. They had referred him because of an increase in throat clearing during meals. Um, and so, you know, when I looked at his video, the guy was a train wreck. Although, as I tell students, never use the word train wreck in a report. But he was a train wreck. But on the outside, the big picture, he wasn't broken. Yeah. You know, somehow his immune system and his ability to, you know, clear the lungs of anything that had been aspirated, he was young and healthy and he was doing okay. But they followed the recommendation. Team agreed. In fact, the director of nursing over there insisted upon it. We have no alternative. We must do this. They put a feeding tube in him. He ended up really trying to pull the tube out. So then they restrained him. At that time, you could do that. Um, he would get loose of restraints. He would walk around the facility and he would um, drink from people's toilets. Uh. So they then they medicated him some more because they said he was agitated. He eventually died. And um, I have never, ever, ever lost that case thinking that my recommendation led to this man's life completely crumbling. Yeah. And it, it's haunted me. Yeah. Every year. And I tell that story every year so that students realize that, you know, we make mistakes. It was a mistake in retrospect. At the time, I made the best decision I could with the information I had at the time. I know so much better now. I would handle it so much differently now. Um, and it bothers me how I manage that case. Yeah. So I said, don't let yourself become old school. Yeah. You know, and then there was another case that I always tell them about. It was about a guy who came to our clinic. He he was aphasic. He came for aphasia. He was also on a feeding tube. And in passing, his wife mentioned one day that he'd started drinking coffee at home. And um, she'd been thickening it because there was some trial. He hadn't been receiving any speech therapy for that. You know, no dysphagia intervention for quite some time. In the university clinic, most of our adults, you know, they're several years out from their stroke. So, you know, he'd been too bad. Oh, yeah, he's drinking some coffee. And, you know, we had some toast the other day. So they were starting to introduce some solid food. And so the supervisor, the students kind of got this look of horror. But the supervisor, well, tell me more about that. You know, tell me more about what, what they're trying. So then she comes and talks to me like, oh, Mr. So-and-so starting to eat. And I said, cool. Why don't you do a clinical about, you know, students could use that experience, make it structured. And so there was one particular girl who was really interested in doing it. So she did it. And then because there were plenty of reasons to, he hadn't had instrumental in ages. We did a video and the student did the video, which was a nice experience for her. And the guy again, aspirated everything, you know, probably just like he had three years ago. And so I thought, here's my opportunity to put my money where my mouth is because I can preach in class about how important it is to recognize, you know, that not everyone who aspirates gets sick and, you know, instrumental assessment does give us some information. Um, but we have to look at the big picture of the patient and we have to consider patient wishes. So it's like, here we go. <laughs> you know, put up or shut up. So the students looking at me again, this look of absolute horror. What do we do? What do we do? I said, calm down. It's fine. So I showed the patient and the family the video. And I said, you know, if you look at this, 
pretty much everything you tried eventually made its way, you know, you put it into your airway. I said, now that's what happened today with all the things we gave you. But you've been drinking coffee at home now for how long? Oh, months. And you started adding some solid food about how long ago? Several weeks. The wife was a really good caregiver, and as I said, and she kept his temperature. So his temperatures have been good. His long sounds have been good. When was his last doctor visit? Oh, two weeks ago. Were there any concerns? Oh, no, he, everything was fine. He said, well, you have some options here. That he's got his food in place. He's still using it. You're introducing some foods. I said, based on these results of the video, there's several ways we could go. One way is that we could say, you know what? This video showing us that everything you eat and drink is eventually making its way into the airway. Um, that's a very risky proposition. And you might consider just not having anything else by mouth. The advantages to that would be that you wouldn't have to worry about anything that you're taking by mouth going into the airway. Um, all the issues that come with feeding tubes are still present. You can still lead to more reflux. You can aspirate that. And you can still aspirate your saliva. Now, ma'am, you're doing really good oral care. His mouth is very clean, so we're not real concerned about that. But if you take away people's food, they produce less saliva, and there's complications with that. So you could take away all the food. That's an option. Has its advantages, has its disadvantages. You could say, you know, I'm really liking my coffee and my toast. Um, I'm really tired of this feeding tube. I just want to eat, and I don't want to deal with this feeding tube anymore. And... You know, I'm not, you know, don't really care about any of these risks. I'm 87 years old. I'm having a good life here going on. I'm got, I got a whole lot better than I ever thought. So, you know, I'm just going to not have feeding tube anymore. We're just going to take everything by mouth. So, or you can do something in the middle where you kind of continue the way you are, cautiously feeding, cautiously adding some things. Uh, keep an eye on all the vital signs like you are. Make sure your doctor knows. He'll get the results of this video. Um, that you could proceed this way. The advantages to this would be that you would be able to continue to have some foods by mouth. Um, the disadvantages is that we know that there's things going into your airway. So far, you've been healthy. Talk about some signs that can be looked for. Make sure your doctor's aware. You know, and so these are kind of your options. What are your thoughts? And they chose to continue with the middle option to continue to have some foods by mouth. I think he had a glass of wine or a beer at a family gathering at some point. Um, he died a couple years later and he had another stroke. So, you know, it was not his dysphagia that caused his demise, even though we knew he was a chronic aspirator. We knew he was aspirating absolutely everything. We gave him, again, a big picture choice. It was not just what was happening on the instrumental assessment, but the whole big picture about what was happening with this guy. And they made the decision and he never had any complications. So, you know, those are the two stories I always tell the first day of class, that these are tools, they're important tools, you need to know what's happening, but you need to be able to make good decisions, or or actually, I shouldn't say you make good decisions, you need to be able to give people information so they can make good decisions for themselves, and that's what I didn't do 20 years ago, and on one level, I forgive myself for not knowing things the way we know them now, but on the other hand, if I'm willing to share that story, maybe students won't make that mistake. There's the phone again. Hang on. <laughs> so I wanted to ask you on top of that, because this, this topic came up last night in my talk that I had. You know, somebody said, I, I get these reports that, you know, the patient's aspirating everything. And, you know, the DON or the administrator says, well, that's what the video shows. So that's what we have to go with. <sighs> I hate that. <laughs> 
I know. That, that's what I was like. I, no, no. <laughs> I know. I, I honestly believe how much of this comes from finances, probably a lot of it. I think that there's just the fear of the lawsuit mm-hmm. um, on many, many levels. There are a lot of clinicians who you'll hear them say things like, you know, it's my license on the line. Mm-hmm. Well, no, not really. A license is generated by your state, and it says that you've achieved the educational and continuing ed requirements to call yourself a speech-language pathologist. Um, it doesn't guarantee that anyone's going to have any kind of certain kind of outcome. Licenses don't work that way. It's a statement to the public that I, I have the education and skills to do what I do. Mm-hmm. Not a guarantee of anything. Um, and best practice is implied or knowledge and adherence to best practice is implied by having a license. So those who say, well, the video said this, so we're only going to, like, they aspirated everything, so we can't give them anything. Well, that ignores federal laws related to patient autonomy and Medicare regulations. You know, there's some links that have been, and, and I can get them if you want. There are some links to, uh, some documents from the SIG-15 group has had quite a bit of discussion on this of late about how, you know, healthcare inspectors are looking for evidence that patients' rights have been respected, that patients' choices are being uh, sought and, and respected and followed. Um, and, you know, I also have been hearing stories about uh, facilities who want patients to sign DNRs. Yes. If they want to eat. Yes. Well, a DNR is if your heart stops. It has absolutely nothing to do with directing your own care. So I'm not sure on every level where this comes from. I think it's fear of litigation. But if you act in response to fear of litigation from one small angle, you risk litigation from other angles. Yes. Um, The Jennifer Horner article that's been widely cited um, talking about um, the use of waivers and things like that. You know, that sets up a situation where, and I know a lot of facilities use waivers, and that sets up a coercive situation where you have to agree with me um, or I'm abdicating my responsibility to you. Well, no, it's not a matter of my responsibility to you. It's a matter of honoring your choices. So what I tell students, you know, I ask, I ask them point blank, you know, who's afraid of being sued? You know, and a couple of hands go up. Yeah. And it's like, why are you afraid of being sued? You know, because someone will, someone will aspirate. Someone will get sick. I said, so, all right. Did you ever aspirate? Most people have. Um, may not have known it. Um, I said, so, did you get sick? No. Okay, so you're young and healthy. So we don't know necessarily how many people who aspirate actually get sick. Um, if you go to the doctor and have him give you something to do, like some directive, have you followed that to the letter? No. Okay. Um, did your doctor refuse to see you anymore? Did the doctor take away all the other information or take away everything that else has done? No, because he's working with you. So the law requires that patients' rights be respected and that they have the ability to participate and direct their own care to the extent that they can. That's a law too. And waivers take that away, takes away that conversation. Um, that the, the law is stated, you know, you have to document the conversations that are had and the easiest way to protect yourself from a lawsuit is to present lots of information in a way the patient and the family can understand and let them choose. 
if they've chosen, if they've made the decision, who are they going to sue? Yeah. Because you've given them all the alternatives. Kind of like I did with that guy, the stroke guy, where the, you've given them the alternatives. You've told them the possible advantages and disadvantages. You've discussed risks and benefits and they've made an informed choice and you've documented all that. Yeah. It's all there. Yeah. So, so you did, you did say you documented that, Pam? I did. Yeah. So how would you document that? I would, I documented the entire conversation. Yeah. I mean, verbatim, if you can, that's hard to do. Yeah. Um, but rather than saying, you know, patient indicated understanding, um, I would say, you know, patient and wife stated, quote, we would prefer to continue to feed by mouth, you know, and I asked, you know, and then, and quote, Thank you for sharing all those options with us. You know, basic things that it's not like you practice waiting to be sued. Um, but if you're worried about being sued, your documentation is your best defense against that. I'm waiting for some patient to, this is another project I have, which I'll tell you about, but I'm waiting for a patient to sue because, or if their family to sue because their, their wishes weren't honored and they got sick anyway. And then that's, uh, I've, yeah, I've had that conversation a few times this week with a few people, you know, it's like, you don't wish a lawsuit upon anybody, but at what point are we going to wake up and realize that it's not our show? You know, we're there to help our patients. That's, I think why everyone Mm -hmm. got in this field is to help patients and not to put your spin on things and force your wishes on them. The other potential, the other project I have um, that a group does, uh, it is a lawsuit. So when they do the, when they do the presentation, I often get the law and order, like, boom, boom, ah. pretty, pretty <laughs> funny. Um, but it's a hypothetical case and the, the speech pathologist has been hired as an expert witness in a case where a patient was placed on honey thick liquids and, um, did not like them, did not drink them and developed complications due to aspiration and dehydration. Um, and the patient was eventually hospitalized and passed away and the facility has filed suit you're not the one being sued. You are the expert witness, you know, and basically do a literature review on what we know about thick and liquids overall general health outcome. And they pretty much quickly figure out that there's not a whole lot out there. And in fact, what happens is that dehydration is rampant facilities and the part they have plenty of references on. And so they have to come up with one of them has to role play being a prosecutor and the other one has to be the, the, the expert witness. And they have to practice verbalizing all that. So, I love it. You know, it's a, it's a good activity for that. I'm waiting for that to be real though. Yeah. That's completely made up. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, but it's a fun way to get them thinking beyond like, okay, you know, we, we, you can make these recommendations. And, and I've said this in my past, Look, I can see on video that they do better with that. But if they don't drink it. Right. Right. It does no good. Right. So, you know, if you make a recommendation that in your little quick, fast, narrow realm looks like it's going to solve the world, but it's patient doesn't accept it. And there are, and there are negative consequences to that. You have a, a responsibility toward or to with those negative consequences you shared in that. Yeah. So you need to be thinking beyond more than just your small little silo. That's yeah. the buzzword of the yes. day. Yes. Silo. You used to say Island. They used yes. to be islands. Now they're silos. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Not sure when the change happens, yeah. but hey. <laughs> All right. Is there any anything else you want to touch on, Pam? Any final words? 
I don't know. What do you recommend? I think that that last case was fantastic. I think that's just what everyone needs to know. And I think I, I love your perspective on looking at the entire patient. And I think sometimes we just get so sucked into wanting to improve tongue-based retraction. You know, just we get so caught up in these little buzzwords and take a step yeah. back and look at the whole picture. <laughs> it, it's it's a question of balance. Yep. Which I believe was an old Moody Blues song for <laughs> an album. It was an album. I think I'm dating myself. Um, but it really is because I'm not, you know, I'm not saying that improving tongue-based traction is not an important thing to do and right. to think about. Right. Um, and, you know, just like getting instrumentation, it's a good thing to do. But, it, you know, I think we run into problems when everything is just interpreted in its, in its silo. And I think a lot of it has to do with people this is a personality trait of, of a lot of speech pathologists, I think, to, to let patients make their own decisions and to accept that some degree of aspiration might be something that can be taught. That's a big control issue. Yeah. You know, you've got to give up your ability to control a situation. Yeah. And a lot of people don't like that. Right. You know, right. and I think I don't think that's abnormal. I mean, I like to know if I do this, 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 and this, that this, 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 and this will happen. Right. I like that. It makes my life ordered. It makes things manageable. It makes me feel in control, comfortable, like I know what I'm doing. And to give up some of that, to say, well, the patient's going to decide, well, then what's going to happen? Well, we don't know. Right. Well, what do you mean we don't know? Well, it, they've made a choice. And right. they, they, but what if he gets sick? That might happen. But what if he died? Well, that might happen. He knows that that's a risk and he's willing to accept that. Well, I'm not willing to accept that, but it's not your choice to make. Right. You know, so it, it's a big control issue. And, and, you know, that's, that's hard for people because for many people, control issues are what made them the high achievers that got them into grad school. Yeah. So right. Right. Being very, very driven and, and fact oriented and task oriented and detail oriented. And I have to know every little thing got them where they are. Yeah. And now here we are asking them to think differently. You know, take a step back, be a bit more general. Don't lose sight of all the trees, but you know, this is a forest. Right. Right. Um, and you have to see the whole forest and, and it's hard for people. Right. And if it's hard for one person, you know, there's people just like that, like that director of nursing who would say, you know, whatever the video says, that's what we've got to do. That's a control issue. Right. Right. There are other aspects of that whole scenario that she can't control. Yeah. There was a, a girl that came up to me at the um, the talk I had last night, and she just, you know, kind of thanked me for the podcast and things. But she said, you know, one of the things is that I've always just been very factual with my patients and, you know, tell them exactly what we saw in the video or the fees and, you know, this is what's going to happen to you. And, you know, she just said she's kind of now learned a lot more about patients' rights and, She's mm -hmm. been a lot more, you know, let go of the control and just said, you know, this is kind of what's going on. What do you think? And she's like, I feel like I almost have a lot more job satisfaction now. Like my patients actually are happy to talk to me because I'm there to listen to them and I'm on their yeah. team. I'm not working against them. I'm working with them. Right. And, you know, you also will hear therapists say, you know, patients don't want to talk to me because they're afraid I'm going to put them on pureed and thicken liquids. Right. Or, you know, somebody coughs and they see you and they're like, oh, no, don't change my diet. Right. You know, it, it's so backwards. That we, we, and we've done this. When I say we, collectively, the profession, yep. you know, we've done this to ourselves by creating this reputation that, you know, all we do is change people's diets. So that's just an alternative to them if they choose to do that. 
there are always other alternatives. And if we haven't given patients those choices and we just tell them what they must do, well, of course they're not happy with that. Nobody likes to be told what to do. Right. And you always have the right to refuse care. So, right. All right. I think we can end there, Pam. Okay. Thank you so, so much. Thank you. So if you would love to hear more of these episodes and get some easily digestible bites of swallowing knowledge, then please leave a review on iTunes or pledge a small amount on patreon.com forward slash swallow your pride because that is what keeps these episodes coming. Also, don't forget to subscribe, share with your closest colleagues, and show notes will always be available to download over on SwallowYourPridePodcast.com, where you can also be notified of the latest podcast episodes. Also, credit to Stephanie Jacobson for her incredible editing skills, and thank you so much to all of you for listening.